chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. For a few moments this evening, I'd like to teach on faith that is tested. Faith that is tested. Genesis 22, beginning with verse 1, and I'll read the first three verses. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, for that word tempt, we'll say test, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and cut wood, or clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. So you can see in verse one, it says God did test Abraham. So we're going to look at this in accordance with that verse that says to us in the Psalms, even though I'm not going to teach specifically on that verse, but it says concerning Joseph, the word of the Lord tried Joseph. So faith that is tested. Let's pray. Father, again, it is our privilege to be able to break the bread of life for a few moments as I minister the word of the Lord. I pray that you help me to speak clearly. Give each of the ones listening ears to hear what an honor, what a privilege to be able to talk to people about the things of God. I pray that we'll walk out of here with understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a verse of scripture in James in the first chapter that tells us that we should count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, tests, trials. The average person, if we were honest, usually is not too excited about going through different tests, trials. Nevertheless, James tells us that it is our responsibility to conduct ourselves in a manner that pleases God. And what he says is that rejoicing or being joyful is that manner that pleases God. Now, there are a lot of things you don't have control over, but you do have control over your emotions. You do have control over what you think about. So that means you have control over the actions that you're involved with in the midst of some kind of a test. So you can choose to be happy during the test. You can choose to smile. You can choose to rejoice or you can choose to murmur and complain. But you need to make your choice knowing that the murmuring and complaining is not going to be advantageous to you at all. But if you rejoice, you know you're pleasing God. Now, I've never met anybody that attended school who enjoyed pass and fail tests. But that's usually what a test is about. You get a passing mark or you get a failing mark. The average Christian, however, is unable to discern the difference between when they're being tempted by the devil or being tested by God. In fact, if you don't know the difference, that's going to affect how you pray, how you believe, and how you react. What's the difference between a temptation 
and a test. A temptation is what the adversary uses to get you to do evil. It yields the possibilities of doing evil. But remember what, what the scripture says. God does not solicit man to do evil things. In fact, God doesn't tempt people to do evil things. Neither is he tempted by evil things. What is a test? A test is proving ground for what you know. So this is an opportunity for you to apply the knowledge of God. That's what happens in a test. Whereas in a temptation, you can end up in a very bad place because you yield to what the adversary is saying. God is not trying to draw out of you evil when you are being tested. The whole point is for him to reveal to you what he already knows is inside of you. Always remember, faith that is untested is faith that cannot be trusted. You'll never know that you have overcoming faith unless you have obstacles you have to come over. You'll never know that your faith is reliable unless you pass through circumstances in which your faith has to be utilized or employed. Now, Paul uses the illustration, or I should say the expression, with the Corinthians. He said, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he tells them, you know how you once were worshipers of idols. Now, it's not like they forgot their past life. But, but remember this, when, when we're passing through a test, the, the scripture shows us that knowledge is important because the Lord said to the people in Hosea, he said, my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. When people are called ignorant in scripture and even in its usage today, at least two definitions of ignorance, one has to do with the, the lack of knowledge. The other one has to do with the neglect of that knowledge. So when you're passing through a circumstance, sometimes it's not because of what you do not know. It's because of what you fail to apply. You do know. Somebody walks outside and it's raining very hard. And somebody told you before you went out there that it's going to rain in about 20 minutes. But you decided to go out there anyway without an umbrella. There's no sense in you blaming God. Somebody gave you information. And the way this world operates today, your phone will tell you in, in how many minutes the rain is going to come. So you have to operate with the knowledge that you have. And when you're passing through a test, God is not trying to prove to you that you're just a worthless piece of nothing and he's going to squash you in the midst of this test. No, that's what the adversary wants to do because he comes to steal, to kill and destroy. But God comes that you might have life and he wants you to have an abundance of that life. Well, let me take you to another verse. Let's go to Judges chapter 2. As, as we move into this, I want you to recognize the variety of reasons that tests are given in Scripture. Judges chapter 2, beginning with verse 20. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said... Because this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice. Now we're in Judges chapter 6. That'll be the, the, the seventh Bible, seventh book of your Old Testament. Verse 21. I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died. That through them I may prove Israel whether they will Note the reason, keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. 
Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. It reiterates what I just read, but then verse 2. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as before who knew nothing thereof. So what are we learning here? That there are different reasons for tests. Abraham is being tested in order for God to illustrate his fear of the king and to manifest the love that he has for his son. As you saw at the end of Judges chapter 2, one of the reasons they had to deal with the nations that were left was because God wanted them to be able to know whether or not they would keep the way of the Lord. Now this is important, because you you can raise a young person in church, put the word of God inside of them, but you're never going to know what they're going to become or what they're going to do until they're an adult and they step out on their own. See? When they go to college, when they get a job, then you're going to find out exactly what it is that they believe, because now this world is out there in front of them, and the world is not a comfort zone like home is. Home very often is a place that's positive, a place that's affirming. And you get out there in a world where the devil is and there are people that tell you they don't like you. They don't care anything about you. You do your job, get here on time or you're fired. And they'll say it without tact, without regard to your feelings. Nevertheless, it's in those times that you discover whether or not you truly have faith in God. Are you going to stand and believe the word of God or are you going to fall apart like a cheap tent in a storm? That, that's what happens. The second reason, as we read in chapter 3, is the purpose of the test is to demonstrate to a generation who's known nothing about this how to fight, to teach them war. Now, in the Old Covenant, Israel had to learn how to fight because they had been slaves in Egypt. They had not been trained to be warriors. But if they're going to be a nation, holy nation, a peculiar people chosen unto God, they've got to be ready and willing and able to run off the adversaries. And that's exactly what God was working at with, with these different people. Now, in the New Covenant, of course, we don't fight with spears and bows and arrows and chariots. Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armor of God. One of the pieces of armor is the shield of faith. The shield of faith is an offensive weapon to be used to attack someone, see? But it's also a defensive weapon to be used to block the fiery darts of the adversary. What are his fiery darts? Accusations, slander, attacks on your character. Sometimes he'll, he'll fight you physically, trying to bring sickness to you. He'll bring condemnation into your life to make you think you, you never really did become a Christian and you're not a Christian now. He'll do anything he can to, to come up against you and cause you to stop in this warfare. But if you're going to be a believer, you've got to dig in your heels and be willing to fight. Because the adversary, he's willing to fight. So are you willing to fight to the death? Paul said to Timothy, be thou faithful unto death. And if you're not willing to use your faith to resist the enemy then I can give you my word that he'll do everything he can to destroy you, and it's more than likely he will. So there are certain verses you do need to know. Verses like this, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Or, if God is for me, who can be against me? Or, thanks be to God who causes me to triumph in all things. Or, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. Verses like that you need to know. 
Well, let's come back to Genesis 22 and look at verse 1. What are some of the reasons that our faith is tested and tried? Well, Genesis 22, 1, it came to pass again that God did test Abraham. Now, God does nothing except he does it with a purpose. There's an objective behind everything that God does. Peter says, do not be surprised concerning the the fiery trial of faith that has come to you. Then he goes on to say, your faith being much more precious than gold. Which is to say, since God places and esteems your faith to be of greater value than gold, then you can expect your faith to have pressure applied to it. God doesn't give you anything just so you can harbor it and protect it so that it can never come into contact with the adversary. God puts the light inside of you so that it can come in contact with darkness. You're a Christian. Every day you have to deal with sinners. Every day you have to deal with unbelievers. And what you believe has to be strong enough in you so that when the adversary comes around with his unbelief, you have a strong enough faith to resist him. So your job could very well be a test every day of your faith. The people who are on your job could be a test to your faith. Your family can be a test to your faith. Because if you've got people in your family that live to produce strife and discord, every time they see you coming, they want to start an argument. So your family can be a problem. Your church can be a test to your faith. If you've got enough carnal people in there who don't think about the word of God and not interested in God, you'll be standing there having a conversation with somebody. Then pretty soon a few vulgarities and cuss words will come out in the sanctuary. You're like, oh, my word. Where did you come from? See, that kind of a thing. Well, again, Abraham is our example and so here's what we what we want to know about some of the reasons that we pass through tests. Number one, this is to confirm our faith. Look at verse verse two again. Take your only son, the one that you love. Now, God knew this man had great affection for his son. And God still told him, you're going to take him and you're going to offer him on a mountain. In verse 3, early in the morning, he got up and did this. He didn't waste any time because true faith in God is going to be obedient to what God says do. He got up early, took two servants as well as his son. Now, let's kind of review quickly this whole scenario and why this is important. Abraham left home at the age of 75. He went northward to the area that we know today as southeastern Turkey. From there, his pops died. He made his way southward into the promised land. Scripture says he was wealthy. He had cattle. He had silver. He had gold. However, it was a time of famine. And it doesn't matter how much silver and gold you have during the famine. Cows can't eat gold and silver. You need pasture land. Well, these people wanted children. And God told Abraham, 
he's going to have a child because Abraham said to the Lord, look, what are you going to give me? I'm being I'm being obedient to you. I'm faithful to you. The only person I have working for me is my, my servant here, Eliezer. And, and that's all that I have. And the Lord said, he's not going to be your heir. You're going to have a child. So. They expected a child, but Sarah decided she wanted to help God. She wanted to help God. And of course, you know, when you help God, it doesn't always work out right. And so they ended up with Ishmael. But imagine how excited Abraham was at the birth of Ishmael. I'm telling you, he's bouncing that boy on his knee. He's absolutely excited. I've got a male child, male seed. It's a patriarchal environment. And then he's teaching this boy everything you can possibly think of, how to hunt, how to dress out meat. He's teaching himself about vegetation, got him out there farming. And then God comes along and says, by the way, he is not the promised child. Sarah is going to have a child. Sarah laughed. Well, she, she eventually conceived, had the baby. And now Abraham is showing uh, probably double the love and affection that he had towards Ishmael because this is the promised one. So God knows there's a special affection there, special tie there, the son of his old age. And the Lord says, take this boy and you go and sacrifice him. Now, verse three says he got up early in the morning and did this. Now, I've, I've got a question. Do you think Abraham sat down with with Sarah and said to her, um, God just spoke to me and I've had a revelation. And this boy that we've been praying for all this time that's finally here, the Lord just spoke to me and told me to take him to the top of a mountain, strap him down just like we would an animal, set him on fire, and then offer him to God. You, you think he would have had that kind of conversation? I bet you that's why this man got up early in the morning in verse 3. He probably didn't mention it to Sarah at all because by the time he would have came to after that conversation, he'd have had knots all over the top of his head where she hit him with that rolling pin. But he, he launches out and, and he moves in the direction of the will of God because he's illustrating his faith. His faith is being confirmed. You, you don't believe anything until you obey what God told you to do. That's that's when you prove that you believe what God has said, when you change your actions and move in the direction of God. So verse four, the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place. Now, I've never in my life walked for two days straight. I've never even had to travel for two days on a mule. But I imagine it can't be a comfortable ride. So he steps out of the out of the the place where he's residing. His son, two servants, they travel six hours. God hadn't said a thing. They traveled 12 hours. God hadn't said a thing. Maybe they passed the night somewhere. The second day, they travel all day. God still has not said anything. Well, if God doesn't talk to you, then you just have to go by what he said the last time he spoke to you. Don't don't look for a second verse of scripture. If he's already told you in the first verse of scripture what you need to do, fulfill the first verse of scripture, and then there'll be something else he'll tell you to do next. But if you're going to just stand around here and just wait and, and, and try to be the kind of person where you walk into a store, God's got to tell you what dress to buy. If you don't know what color dresses you like, that's a problem. You don't know what dresses you like, what pair of pants you want to wear. But in this instance, on the third day, God said, that's the place right there. And this man said in verse five to the young men, 
You stay here with the, with the donkey. My boy and I are headed to the top of the mountain to worship, and we're going to come again. Notice how he describes what they're going to do. For Abraham, it's worship. The sacrifice, it's worship. Uh, Romans 12 says that we should offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. That's worship. He then says, we'll come again. So in Abraham's mind, regardless of what happens up there on that hill, no matter how much screaming and yelling and hollering you hear, I can promise you my boy and I are coming back down this hill. This man's faith is being confirmed. And he's illustrating it by what he is doing. Well, notice then, verse 6 Abraham took the wood, laid it upon his son. So the instrument by which Isaac is going to die, he's carrying it just like Jesus would carry the cross heading up the hill going to Calvary. And then in verse 7, we move into this, this whole other aspect. So now Isaac has an opportunity to talk, and he says, now look, we've been building altars for a long time, and I've been with you on many occasions when we've done this, and typically there's an animal with us. And, and I, I, I don't hear and I don't see anything as we're climbing up this hill. And I like what Abraham said here in verse 8. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, here's where the, we move into the whole area of commitment. How committed are you to the will of God? How committed are you to the things that God has told you to do? God himself will provide a lamb. Now, the, the, the second part of the word provide comes in our English language, comes from the word video in Latin, which means I see. But then the, the first part, the, the P-R-O, the, the, the uh, prefix part, has to do with something that takes place beforehand. So when we talk about God provides, we're saying that God sees from the beginning. He sees the ending from the beginning. So there's never been a path that you've been on that God hadn't already prepared provision for you if, in fact, he told you to get on the path. So I've told you before that where God guides, he provides. If it's his vision, he provides the provision. If it's his will, it's his bill. God always pays for the very things that he orders. And in this instance here, Abraham is able to say to his boy who has some questions, and I would have had some questions. God's going to provide himself a lamb. Now they get to the top of the hill. And then you notice there in verse number nine that, that Abraham built an altar, laid the wood, and then bound Isaac. Now if I'm Isaac, I'm thinking, I heard you the other day. I heard you a little bit, a little bit, a little bit ago. And you said God's going to provide himself a lamb. And now you're asking to tie me up. See? At no time in this scripture do you read of Abraham having to chase Isaac around the top of this hill. Isaac was committed to his father. His father was committed to the will of God. At no time do you read anything in verse 9 where Isaac was resisting his father and fighting him back saying, there's no way on this earth you're going to tie me up. No. He was committed and submitted to the will of God. So why do we resist God's will? Why do we fight back? Why is it when God's dealing with your heart about something, you're so insistent about going your own way, doing your own thing, wrestling and fighting with God, when God is telling you clearly 
And explicitly, this is where I want you to go. This is the place you're supposed to be. And then you decide you're smarter than God. That's what happens. A lot of people believe they're smarter than God. But Jesus said, nobody takes my life, but I lay it down. And he laid down on the cross. See, Roman soldiers didn't have to chase him around the top of the hill. They wouldn't, people weren't standing and looking at the silhouette of the mountain and said, oh my goodness, do you see Jesus up there? He's jumping around like this. The Roman soldiers can't catch him. He laid down on the cross and they nailed him there for your sins and for mine. You talk about commitment. The test illustrates the kind of commitment that we have to God. But then also it illustrates our strengths and our weaknesses. Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us that Abraham said that if the Lord had him go to the top of the hill with his son, he believed that God would resurrect him from the dead. He's the first person we know of in the scripture that believed clearly in the resurrection of a, of a life that's been deceased coming back. So he, he told that the servants, we're going up to the top of the hill, we're coming back. And he probably told Isaac, he said, look, you lay down here, I'm going to tie you up, and I've got to do what I'm supposed to do. But I give you my word, Isaac, if you die up here on this on this altar, they'll have to come up here and pull me off the top of you because I'll die right here on top of you also. But the scripture tells us he believed God would raise his son from the dead. So Isaac, as I as sure as I have this knife in my hand and I raise it up, if I plunge it into you, I give you my word. God is going to bring you back. You talk about commitment. How many sons would believe that? How many sons would trust their fathers if they said that? My, my own dad. I love my dad. But if my dad took me to the top of a hill when I was a teenager or nine or ten, he said, now look, Daryl, you just lay down right here. I'm going to pull out this little knife that I'm sharpening. And then here in a few moments, all the pain and everything's going to be over. But just know God's going to raise you from the dead. He would have saw a blur as I would have took off running off that hill as fast as I could. But not in this story. Here's a son that's committed to the will of his father and to the will of God. So a test can illustrate your strengths. We'll find out what you really believe. Yeah, what you really believe. But it can show your weaknesses too. Going back to what I said of Abraham in Genesis 12, they ran into the famine. They ended up having to go south to Egypt when they got there. He was so concerned about the beauty of his wife that he said, please, they will kill me because you are so attractive. Let's tell everybody you're my sister rather than my wife. Now, she had to be one more pretty woman in her 90s. My goodness. You talk, no oil of Olay out there in that desert. My God, God had to really be preserving the flesh. It, it, at that time, for him, at uh, close to the age of a hundred, to have to say, say to his wife, "Look, I, I realize you, you're a quite attractive lady, but they'll kill me in a heartbeat for you." But it shows his weakness, because he was willing to tell a half truth, you know, to preserve his own life. And sometimes when we pass through a test, we don't realize what is in us until the test comes and pulls it out. I've told you before with David and Bathsheba, here he was, should have been out there in the war during wartime with the kings. He's walking on the rooftop staring at a woman who's taking a bath. And pretty soon he's enticed by that. 
brings her into his house and ends up uh, having physical relations with her. But here's the point. Adultery was always, had always been in the heart of David. He just needed a Bathsheba to bring it out. See? So we don't know what can come out of us until we're in certain tests, which is why we should do everything we can to preserve our character. Don't forget, character is to your Christian life what your foundation is to your home. Mm -hmm. Your character. Well, let's move on. What's the purpose of an examination? A a test shows whether you're prepared or not. That's what a test shows. When when we were in school as children, you'll remember that the teacher would come in sometimes and say, okay, this is a pop quiz today and then you could hear all the sighs in the classroom oh my goodness I hadn't had time to study I was out doing this all weekend but you don't as well as I do on the first day of school as soon as you start the school year throughout the year they're going to be pop quizzes and surprise exams so why not just study all year round? In theory, that's the way it's supposed to work, but in practice, that's not how kids do it. Why not just study all the time so you'll be adequately prepared? I say that because this is what happens very often with Christians. We, we wait until we're in trouble and then we start trying to cram. We try to cram our head full of knowledge. As soon as we have financial problems, we want to find every verse in the Bible that has to do with money. If we're having problems with leading somebody to Christ, we want to find every verse in the scripture that has to do with salvation and the same thing with healing. And we're not fooling God. And just like in a classroom, when a person goes through a test, typically the one that crams fails. Because they can't remember everything so quickly. What is the response of the teacher? What are the conditions during the test? What happens during test time? Where initially, God sets forth the rules. Just like in a classroom, a teacher will say to the students, this is going to be a test. You have 30 minutes to do such and such. Closed book test, open book test. The rules are set forth for the students so they know. God says to Adam and Eve, of every tree in the garden you can eat except this one. He's setting forth the rules. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says to the nation of Israel, I'm bringing you into the the promised land, but you need to know when you get there, hear the rules. If you do everything I tell you to do, you'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb. Blessed will be your cattle. You'll be blessed. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. If you refuse to obey and hearken to my words, you'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the field, cursed to be the fruit of your womb, cursed to be your cattle, and and so on. So over and again, we find that if God's going to make a commitment to us, he sets forth the rules and he expects us to obey them. So in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Chapter 3, we have seven churches. To those churches, God has a number of things that he wants to say to them about their condition. He says they're good in many, many instances. But he always says, to him that overcometh, I will give this. What is he doing? Setting forth the rules. You either overcome or your name will be blotted out of the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what he said to one church. 
Now, God doesn't do anything to play with your emotions, so he's not going to say that unless it's a possibility that it can occur. So he says, if you overcome, this is what's going to happen. But he's telling them, you cannot be an overcomer unless you have obstacles. You have to have obstacles. Them folks told me in the in boot camp in the Marine Corps, they said, look, here's the obstacle course. You have approximately four and a half minutes to go from here all the way to the end. Now, we're all standing there. We're looking at mud pits and we're looking at ropes and walls that have to be climbed. Now, those drill instructors already know there's no way you're going to make it in four and a half minutes. But they give you a short time like that because they want to see how you're going to act under pressure. And they want to see whether or not you believe you can do it. And so when they... When they yell go and then we all take off and then you can quickly see who can scale a wall and who can't. Hit the rope, pull yourself over. And then four and a half minutes later, when some of us were done, we come back around and there's still our people trying to climb that wall and can't get over it. And there's several drill instructors around them yelling at them, calling them, their mother and everybody else, every kind of name you can think of, saying, you get over that wall or I'll kill you right now. See, they're, they're testing them. See, The whole point of boot camp, boot camp in every branch of the service is to weed out the undesirables. That's the whole point, to weed out the undesirables. So, the point of the test in the beginning is to set forth the rules. The second thing we'll say about when a person's passing through a test, as you already know, I am sure, is that during the test, the teacher normally is silent. Yeah, teacher's not up there making a whole lot of noise when everybody's taking the test. The teacher doesn't say much of anything at all, and then you wonder why you're not hearing from God. You know, you hear people say, boy, I, I can remember during certain times in my life, it just seemed like God was always talking to me. But now it just seems he just seems to be so quiet. Well, it could be. But you're being tested. I mean, if you've been a Christian a long time, you're no longer an infant. An infant is someone who requires constant care and coddling and affection. And that infant has to hear mom and dad and family members' voices and the nanny's voice and the daycare worker's voice in order for them to be safe and secure and not cry. And that's why when they get into an unfamiliar environment and see people they're not used to seeing, they start screaming. But then when they see somebody they know, a familiar face, then all of a sudden they settle down and there's calmness there. So they're constantly having to be reaffirmed. Toddler falls when they're trying to learn how to walk. And very often they look back, mom and dad, and before they even look back, mom and dad have darted to them when trying to pick them up and kissing on them and kissing their owies and making sure they don't have any problems at all. But that's only for a season, folks. I'm going to tell you right now, you look silly doing that to a 14-year-old. If every time a 14-year-old fell down, you're grabbing on them, holding them and coddling them the same way you would an infant. I tell you what my dad said, boy, are you bleeding? Well, and close your mouth and get up and sit down then. See, that's, that's, that's how, how, okay, your parents weren't like mine. Okay, so the teacher sometimes is silent when you're passing through a test. But the teacher is taking the time to observe behavior. That's what happened with Abraham. Notice in verse number 10, 
Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. See, God was observing his behavior. That's what a teacher is doing during the test. Paying attention to see how many kids are going to be doing things they shouldn't be doing. Now, a, a teacher who has a room full of good students, they'll go up there, sit down at the desk, and then they might start working on another lesson plan or, or working on something else. But but a teacher who who, who had students like um, like me and Trav and John and Randy. See, a teacher that had people like that in the classroom, they're looking because they know Daryl is going to drop a pencil here in a little while. And when he drops that pencil, he's going to be looking over on somebody's desk, see if there's anybody there, see if there's anything he can copy. He understands that. Well, God doesn't permit you to copy during a testing time unless you're following somebody who's following Christ, imitating somebody who walks with God. And if you find a good example of a Christian, you'll learn how to make it through the various tests and trials. So important to know that. And God will let you know when the end of the test comes. He did that with Job. I mean, Job is 42 chapters, 39 of which has to do with him having conversations with friends who couldn't do anything but tell him how wicked he was. First two chapters are about the devil trying to get at him. The last chapter, finally, he has a conversation with God. And then when he's humbled, it says Job prays for his friends. And then his captivity was changed. And then God gave him double for his trouble. So when you come to the end of of what you're passing through, God has a way of letting you know it's over. So Peter is able to say, I must shortly put off this tabernacle. Paul is able to say, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I finished my course. Henceforth, there laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, the, the last illustration I give you with, with all of this, the testing of the faith, is, you know, God does different things with different people, but God still is able to bring blessing to people. When Tiffany was in school at Oral Roberts University, I, I remember plenty of times walking on, on, on that campus with her and looking at all those big buildings and just thinking to myself, how in the world could anybody believe God and raise enough money to to do this? Now, if you know anything about Oral Roberts and, 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 and those buildings down there, you know Oral Roberts did not have kids out there selling M&Ms and Snicker bars. He, he, he was on television and he... He's, he's teaching giving and receiving and so on and so forth. But when you go down there, you can see it's a testament to somebody's faith. When, when Tiff and I were, before we were uh, married and engaged, we'd be down to Jimmy Swaggart Ministries, and, and we'd walk around the campus down there. And, and I'd look at all of these buildings and all these different names on the buildings of different missionaries and stuff like that. And I think, how in the world did this man raise all this money for these buildings. Now, if you know anything about Jimmy Swaggart, he didn't teach giving and receiving and seed time, faith and all that. He'd just get on television, look in the camera and say, look, I got a need. Please help me, folks. 
Please help me. And then people would just send a whole lot of money. And, and even that was a product of him just believing God would touch people's hearts. So years ago, when I was down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, I, I'd walk out of the seminary, cross the road to go over to uh, the church that, that, that owned the seminary, which is D. James Kennedy's church, Coral Ridge Ministries. It was pastored at that time while I was down there by Billy Graham's grandson. And so I'd walk into this big, beautiful sanctuary. I had to preach there one time. And so I'm in this big, beautiful sanctuary, and they got a pipe organ. And the pipes on the organ, to me, look like they're a quarter of a mile high. That thing was huge. Beautiful church. And the campus was amazing. So I had to preach in the church, and I had to speak in the academy to a bunch of youth. And I recall one time when he was saying on television... He was about a million and a half dollars behind budget. And he looked in that camera and said, would you people please help us any way that you can? And pretty soon he had all that he needed. Now, now here's the thing. Three different preachers. Three entirely different traditions of Christianity. But every single one of them believing that God would supply their need. And every single one of them watched and saw as God put it all together for them. The point I'm trying to emphasize is when we're passing through tests and trials and things like that, you don't know how God's going to respond to you, but our response is always to be the same, to believe and to rejoice and to praise him. How he'll do it, we have no idea. But stand on the word of God and don't be discouraged by all that you see taking place in your life, and in this world. Come on, let's stand tonight. How many of you believe God's a big God? He is. We, we have seen God's hand all over this earth, and you have to trust him. You should trust him. He obligated himself to you by giving his son to die on the cross. We're debtors to him. So if he loved the world that he gave his son, and his son loved the world so much that he would give his life, how much do you love God? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to give? But if you're going to walk with him, that faith of yours is going to be tested. But just know God's not ever doing anything to try to hurt or harm you. He's doing everything he can to edify you and build you up and make you stronger. We all like big muscles, but you can't have muscles unless you have resistance. See? Gotta have resistance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We know your word is true. Each person in here is passing through their own trials and their own tests, God. But we know that your word gives us information to guide our steps. So I pray for each family represented in here today that, Father, you'd give them wisdom. As you said in your word, with all you're getting, get understanding. I pray that you give them an understanding heart. Give them the ability to discern what is taking place in their life so that they would know particularly whether or not the devil is after them or whether they're just passing through something where the word of the Lord is trying God, we thank you that you've appointed us to be victorious in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen, Amen.